This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. This is episode 370. Hello, this is Pete Childs, CFO of Workfront, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. I would say that the, the biggest stuff that I learned there on the strategic part is... Um, when to fold. Those are some of the decisions that you really need someone within the company leading. And oftentimes it's going to be very controversial because you go into a company assuming and hoping that you're going that it's only going to be success, but someone has to raise the flag whenever the risk is rising to say, you know what? If someone else wants to own this, perhaps not time to sell. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Kurt Apkemeyer, CFO of Fidelis Cybersecurity. It's no secret the cybersecurity opportunity is ballooning, and Kurt is tasked with architecting a finance function to accommodate growth. We speak to Kurt about his latest tour of duty, as well as some of his earlier CFO chapters, after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. Hello, we're speaking with Kurt Atkemeyer. CFO at Fidelis Cybersecurity of Bethesda, Maryland. Kurt, welcome. Thank you, Jack. Glad to be here. And as always, we like to begin by asking our guests to look back in time and telling us a little bit about themselves. What were those career experiences, Kurt, you feel helped prepare you for a CFO role? Sure. Uh... I think that some of the experiences in my past that best would have prepared me would have been very early on in my career, about the first quarter of my, my career. I actually spent on Wall Street as a sell-side equity analyst. And as a sell-side equity analyst, you have an opportunity to study an industry, all the players within it, the greater industry. You dig into the financials of the companies. You build financial models. You get to know the executives so that you, you then develop a really good baseline for what will make a company good because you're constantly contrasting good companies versus bad companies. 
and also because you have peers within uh, different, completely different industry segments, you start to be able to compare well, what's your industry like versus other industries. So it gives you a great context for how you build good companies. And that was with six years of that and constantly digging through the financials and seeing good outcomes versus bad outcomes built that baseline such that when I finally decided to make that pivot to go from Wall Street and judging companies to the other side of working within finance and strategy groups to actually build companies and make them better, I had a really good baseline to, to know how to operate a company. And I also knew where to be able to find that data, that if I wanted to baseline my own company's performance, where would I, I go to? So that then when I kind of had that next step where I was in more junior levels before you get to the CFO level, I then was really understanding, well, hmm, when I would look as an analyst and there's one little cell that I'd need to be filling out, like let's just say, for example, the growth rate of revenue one year over the other, what to an analyst on the outside is simply one little cell, one little growth number. Once you're within a company, you realize it takes a whole heck of a lot more to generate that number. That um, It then opened my eyes to how you have to put a lot of effort to, to really hit every different kind of metric that you need to within a company. And starting at the, the more junior levels, doing more of the grunt work, getting into more of the details, learning how it's then not just the numbers. It's not just the kind of IQ part of it. It's, it's once you work your way up more through a company's hierarchy, EQ, the emotional quotient of it, plays a much bigger role than the IQ part. And uh, how you get teams to work together, not just within a group, but then group to group. So the, those, there's definitely been a journey where it's you learn the baseline, you then learn the basics of what makes you smarter, then you learn the important characteristics that you have to have to actually be an effective leader. Now, if it's okay, I'd like to mention the bank. Uh, it was J.P. Morgan. Is that right? That's right. When you decide to leave J.P. Morgan, what is the type of opportunity you're you're stepping onto? Was it uh, entrepreneurial? Was it uh, what path did you choose for yourself initially? Yeah, you know, when, when I decided to leave Wall Street, it was a company that I had gotten to to know while I was on Wall Street. It was a competitor within a space that I was looking at. It was a private company as opposed to a public one. And um, I got to know the, the leader of the company very well. Uh, he decided to, to make an offer to have me come on board. I was intrigued, very intrigued, because of the way that this person ran his company was just shockingly different than what people perceived on the outside, such that when he let me in, uh, before before joining the company, but kind of like let me in his inner circle to better understand how he operate, operated, I was just blown away. And that's what gave me the bug to go into uh, a company and see that, wow, you actually can make a difference. So just as an example, to give you context on why I was so intrigued. This company was actually a beeper business, if you remember what beepers are. And back at that time, typical beeper service might might have cost 10 to 15 bucks a month. And at the time, I was actually working on an IPO for another beeper company 
that prided itself on being the low-cost provider offering services seven bucks a month and that they had this superior operating model. Right? That sounds like that's a pretty compelling argument. So now just imagine when I come across this private company and find out that they're offering service at $1.99. Suddenly that made me go, oh, my God, wait, how can that be happening? And, of course, everyone on the outside said, oh, it's a sham. You know, they're, they're, they're losing money hand over fist. And when I got let in, I actually discovered they were pretty much the only company that was making money. So to learn that a company that had such a low price point could actually make money made me really curious. And I'm a very intellectually curious guy. It's like, how the heck are you doing this? And, and I actually had to break them down. When I initially heard about the company, I had to hunt him down. Back then, you didn't have Google. I actually hunted down his phone number through a phone book, called him up. He um, would try to ignore me. I ended up finding him at an industry conference six months later. And when I finally introduced myself, it was one of those things. He, he was like a cornered squirrel, <laughs> like looking for the exit to see how he could get out. But, yeah, you know, I, I, I ended up getting his trust such that he shared more. But that's really what it took to make me make that leap. I was just so curious to understand what can make a, a company different and successful. And the way that you got to do it is you have to do it radically different from the way that others do it. How would you have characterized your your role at that point in time? That's corporate development, I'd imagine. How would you – is that broadly what it was? Yeah, yeah. The, it, it, it broadly was that. And at the time, the company was expanding into new markets. And uh, to be honest, I did a lot of grunt work then, and that was his way of, of – really kind of educating me to how business really operates. So I would characterize it, and you, Jack, you're probably about the same age as me, so we would have grown up watching the movie Karate Kid, right? <laughs> this was my wax on, wax off moment where I was negotiating leases and, and coordinating the build-outs of new locations and new markets and going through all the legalese, the coordination, the planning, uh, working to make sure that everything was stocked, people were hired. And, and here I was, I'd been making really good money on Wall Street, and I'm doing pretty basic stuff, but that was his way of getting me indoctrinated into the business. So I really understood the nitty-gritty. If I just stayed at a high level and was managing a spreadsheet and all that, I wouldn't have truly understood the effort and the costs and where you can manage those expenses and the coordination of it very differently. Now, following uh, that position, you do fill a number of CFO roles. What was your first impression when you stepped into that CFO role? I think I, I was very fortunate that in the role prior to becoming CFO, in which I was a, a VP of finance, I'd been at a company called CBON for seven years, and I, I was very fortunate to have a CFO that delegated a lot to me, such that I was in a, a, an a situation, an opportunity to be able to be making decisions and influencing people, not unlike what a CFO would would be doing. So I think of it as I was almost CFO on training wheels at that point, in which I would be able to get guidance from my actual CFO on, on how to handle things. So there. There was a lot that I was able to go through before I was actually in the role with the title of CFO on which the buck stopped with me. 
Um, so that I was very fortunate to be in that situation with a great executive team that embraced me and helped me grow in that kind of respect. I, I would say that I, it enabled me to make the mistakes then before I was in a CFO role where I was truly the CFO. And believe me, I've made plenty of mistakes in that kind of uh, a role. And so I, I'm very fortunate to have had that opportunity in which there was forgiveness for making those kinds of mistakes. Okay, so you arrive at Fidelis Cybersecurity, a seasoned CFO, all the CFO experience behind you. What is the role that you now wanted to create for yourself? Sure. You know, joining Fidelis, it's, it's not unlike joining any other company that I would have joined in, in the past. Uh, Got to make sure that you have the right systems and processes in place so that the company can scale. Um, I, I would say that since the company had been spun out from a, a much bigger company, General Dynamics, a few years earlier, there are some things that we've had to do a little bit differently. Um, and I've had an additional challenge of, of having to relocate the finance department entirely from one location to our Bethesda operation. So there, there's been a lot of focus on just dealing with those kinds of mechanics and just trying to get things set up a way that I think would be most appropriate going forward. Was that move from the same state? Were they within the same state, or are you doing an interstate? Yeah, mo moving from the Boston area to Bethesda. I, I would say that while the, the headquarters had previously been up in the Boston area and it, and it was just a few executives in the finance group, the heart and soul has always been here in Bethesda. This is where the engineering group is and has been all that time, as well as, say, the whole marketing group, uh, operations, IT, all of that's been here. That uh, During the last year when it was decided we should really get everything consolidated here, that's when that decision was made to, to make that, that move to consolidate everything. And you, get, you really get a much better benefit to the business when you do that, when you have a finance department as well as members of the executive team who are not proximate to the rest of the operations. Things are just much more disjointed. Being able to be in the same office and walk down the hallway and if within 10 seconds popping in my, our, our VP of marketing's office or the head of engineering or, frankly, just being in, in the, the coffee room coffee break room with anyone within the company makes a big difference, makes a very big difference, in fact. I would imagine that it was a, a you know a pretty sizable challenge. At the same time, it allowed you the opportunity uh, to have a fresh start with your team. You could rethink, you know, this would be a better approach now that we're, we're making this, this move. Now's the time, no better time than now. What, you know, is that sort of part of what uh, the dynamic was? To a large degree, yes. Uh, Anytime that you come in, you're going to be inheriting a team. And if you take this particular situation, and, and you've never had a, an opportunity to choose those team members, um, irrespective of, of judging what the team might have been like that I inherited, to your point, it provides me the opportunity to choose and structure my team the way that I see most fit going forward. So that's been a benefit to do that. Um, can structure things differently, choose the kind of talent that I think is necessary, uh, and then try to pivot some of the systems and processes differently now that I have new people on my team.
All right, so we want to find out a little bit about uh, Fidelis Cybersecurity's offerings. And the little you told us so far, I'm intrigued, given the fact that this used to be part of General Dynamics. You can imagine this, whatever the uh, cybersecurity offerings might be, buried inside this large corporate environment. Now that you're you're sort of broken out and uh, a little more uh, fleet-footed as you approach the marketplace. Sure, yeah, I, I think some of the points that, that you made there are, are correct about general dynamics, and when you're within a bigger company, it cuts across way more than cybersecurity. What Fidelis would have been doing would have been a small part, effectively rounding error for what they do. And, and Fidelis had actually been a standalone company even before general dynamics had owned it. So um, being on its own now for the last two and a half years does enable it to be much nimbler within in the sector. So to just talk about the, the dynamics within the cybersecurity industry. Uh, as you can imagine, this is a, an industry that would pretty much never go away as long as there are bad actors out there. And uh, there are new ways that hackers will go about trying to get into networks. It's just a matter of leapfrogging. They come up with a, a way to get in. Companies like us, cybersecurity companies, figure out a way to, to keep them out and get them out if they get in. Uh, so that it, it's an industry that will likely never go away. Now, as for how the industry has developed over time and where we see ourselves in it, so much of the focus and absolutely the necessary focus has to be on the prevention and protection of networks so that you keep bad actors out of your network. And that's where your traditional firewall companies like uh, a checkpoint or a Palo Alto networks would have been making their name. Just to provide another analogy, it's like a fort. You want to make sure that you have that wall so that people can't get in into your fort. And they do a great job at that. Um, but the reality is in a, a cyber world, uh, there are holes in walls. And there are ways that people can get through the wall or they might dig over the wall or they might jump on a drone and drop over the wall. And what we focus on is really the detection and response. So the way that we view it within the industry is it's not a matter of if you get hacked, it's a matter of when you get hacked. So with our focus on, on automated detection and response, we make it more likely that, that you as our customer will find that bad, bad actor far sooner and before they can do any kind of damage that, that would be very regrettable for you. Now, given your lines of sight into the organization, what are you – what are the numbers you're paying close attention to now? Yeah, you know, within our sector, because there are so many competitors, there are, are literally thousands of competitors in the cybersecurity world, and there's been a lot of investor money thrown in the space. It's a very frothy market, and we're relatively small compared to some of them out there. And our one of our core beliefs is that we need to be one of the last men standing. And in order to do that, we are very focused on operating a profitable business, which means that we can get through and sustain our business while a lot of our competitors will spend themselves out of business. Investors have patience for a certain period of time where they're willing to fund a lot of losses in order to grow. Um, and we are going to you take the position of we're not going to throw a whole bunch of stupid dollars at stupid growth. 
We're going to keep our core customers happy, keep getting that recurring revenue, and incrementally build off that in a reasonable way. And once the froth subsides and the money kind of gets contracted out of the business, that's where we think we're going to be one of the last ones standing. This is a, it's a SaaS model. Was it uh, in the history of it? I, I imagine not. Uh, can, can you share with us, was this um, uh, a subscription model when you came on board and, and uh, has it matured into one over time? It's maturing. I would say the subscription part is relatively new. It's been traditionally a perpetual model. Um, yeah, I, I would note, because I actually come from a subscription world, one of the original subscription ones, which is the, the mobile uh, cell phone business world. Um, even though you're selling a perpetual license, there is maintenance to it, so there's still very much a recurring revenue part of that business. And our perspective here is we don't want to force our customers down one particular path. We're going give to give them an option of pricing that's perpetual or cloud or subscription and um, make it so that we're indifferent to which one they choose. We believe that over time it's going to be simpler for them to adopt a, a cloud model, especially as they migrate a lot of their assets into the cloud. It's going to be harder for them to really even use a, a perpetual kind of model to protect their, their uh, networking assets that are in the cloud. So we're, we're, we're willing to provide whatever our customers want and if it's subscription, that's great. You shared uh, something interesting there, which I, I hadn't really thought about before. Somehow I think uh, many of us might assume that the uh, subscription model began with the cloud era or the, the cloud software companies, whereas, uh, in fact, uh, in some ways, I would imagine the wireless uh, folks pioneered it. That's, that's, that's right, and, and oftentimes when – executive recruiters are looking for CFOs in the software space, they will often look towards telecommunications because that it has been a subscription business. Whatever landline phone business you had, that's a subscription. If you had a cable service 30 years ago, that was a subscription. So mobile and cable people have had that model beaten into them from 30 years ago, and I'm one of those too. The terminology is a little bit differently, but the concepts are, are identical to what a subscription model is today within the software industry. Well, we like to ask for a what we call a finance strategic moment, which is where sometime during the course of your career, given your lines of sight into the different organizations, you either identified an opportunity, a risk that led you to uh, point the organization in a different direction, or led you to uh, just start beginning to do things a little differently. Does anything come to mind? Yeah. The, you know, there have been multiple times in my career in, in which being in the finance group, and typically it, earlier on in my career especially, I came up through the financial planning and analysis part of finance, where you're doing more of the strategic work. You're, you're the one who understands the numbers better than anyone else within the company. And you're looking outside to see how you stack up to others. And also because I was at a public company, I had to be the one articulating to investors the investment rationale for the company. And having had that Wall Street experience very early on, I understood how important that was and, and what burden it put 
not only on me, but the CEO, CFO, the board of directors, and all of those folks. I would say that the the biggest stuff that I learned there on the strategic part is um, when to fold. You know, you know, Kenny Rogers, the gambler, no one to hold him, no one to fold him. That that it, in multiple times in my career, getting to the point where you've built a company up, it's growing, it's been growing great, but you know what? Suddenly that curve, it looks like it's leveling off. Uh, going through that at a company in the mid to late 2000s, great growth. When we had the recession 2008, 2009, things started to level off and trying to distinguish, well, what's economy and what's actually industry stuff. It was a little bit confusing at first, but the industry dynamics changing as opposed to the economy actually ended up being bigger things. And that's one of those things where you got to decide, you know what, now is time to fold. At another company later on, uh, being able to identify some of the, the risks of how things were shifting among our customers, deciding, you know what, the risk is getting too great that we could get disintermediated from whatever traffic that, that they're sending among one another, now's the time to fold. That's Those are some of the decisions that you really need someone within the company leading. And oftentimes it's going to be very controversial because you go into a company assuming and hoping that, you're gonna, that it's only going to be success. But someone has to raise the flag whenever the risk is rising to say, you know what, if someone else wants to own this, perhaps now's the time to sell. And that's where I think you, you need to have someone be bold and and put out those suggestions and try to coalesce enough support and dig into those risks to make sure that you're making a, a, the appropriate calculated decision. Before I ask you our talent question, I always uh, share this scenario so uh, to better clarify what we're after. You might have seen this floating around in the social media land, uh, but a CFO asks the CEO, what happens if we spend money training our people and they then leave? And the CEO responds, what happens if we don't train them and they stay? Uh, so when it comes uh, to the organization's workforce, as a finance leader, what are, you, what are your priorities? What is it that uh, you and the CEO perhaps uh, share uh, a mindset of? Yeah, well, you know what you just said there, because typically CFOs are are assumed to be the the real prickly ones who are like, yeah, I don't want to invest money, but in stuff like that and uh, the development of, of employees, I can't agree with you more that that is the the way to approach it. And in fact, I would go even further, and I share this with everyone within my my department. I want them all to aspire to have my role someday. Uh, clearly, not everyone can have my role in general. Any, any kind of structure, it's going to be more of a, a pyramid-like kind of shape. But the, the contract that I have with everyone within my organization is I want you to strive to, to go up. So you got to pull responsibilities from someone above you onto yourself. So you're going to free them up so that they can pull stuff from someone above them and all. That creates a, a really good kind of 
sucking action that goes up through the organization that will, can bring people up. And, and my duty is to find a role for you that enables you to move up and constantly will challenge you so that you can develop in your career. And either I can find that for you within my organization or my company, or I will be the first one getting on a phone providing a reference for you to another company on why they are lucky to take you on. And I, I actually like to be burdened with that. I want to see people within my group grow and develop and move on to something bigger and better than what they are today. Uh, to hear where they are 5, 10, 20 years from now, that's what drives me to do it. As a, a, a side effect, will they work really hard and do great things at this company? Yes. But really, I want to hear where they are 20 years from now. And if there's something little that I might have done to help them get there, uh, that makes me happy. Do you find there are certain skills that you're looking for today that maybe you weren't looking for 10 years ago or longer? I don't know that they're necessarily different skills. I would say that the skill that cuts across time, and it's not necessarily a skill, it's more a, a characteristic or trait, it's just intellectual curiosity. The, you know how in real estate people say it's location, location, location. For me, it's intellectual curiosity, intellectual curiosity, intellectual curiosity. You find someone who's intellectually curious, they will figure out anything even if they don't have experience. So that's by far the number one thing I look for. If I were to really kind of stretch more and, and answer your question about what would I look for now that I didn't look for 10 years ago, I'd say probably more people who have developed a little bit more of the EQ part, and that's really more that I appreciate EQ more than I did 10 years ago, and I can see how that can influence how the success of a person within their role, that y you, can, you can do a lot by influencing others as opposed to trying to just have an intellectual argument that I'm right and maybe you're not right. So EQ can play a much bigger role now than I would have appreciated 10 years ago. So if you had two candidates with the equally accomplished candidates, but one with an EQ a little more uh, matured, let's say, uh, hands down, they, they would get the position most likely. Yes. And, and it, it wouldn't just be all things equal. I would take the one with the, the higher IQ. I would actually even take someone with a little bit less intellectual curiosity, but they have the EQ. Thought Leader listeners, among other things, Kurt is about to recommend a book on leadership, one that we haven't heard recommended before as he enters the mentoring round after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive 
consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. This is a good uh, time for us to enter the mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to uh, inform your peer finance leaders and inspire our future finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? One thing that's exciting me about business and finance, well, with finance, as I would say, kind of a, a consummate financial modeler, no model is ever finished, just like to many artists, no work of art is ever finished. I'm constantly refining what it is that I do, and there are, are new people that come into my organization. They may be 25 years younger than me and, and right out of college, but I'm still learning some new things from them. So I, I always like to stay on my toes, and I'm constantly learning even from people who seemingly on the outside might be some of the least experienced people. Um, in business, I would say that things are just moving much more rapidly, uh, much more rapid cycles. You, you can't be complacent. If you're standing still, someone's going to be running past you. Is there a personal habit that you have that you believe has contributed to your professional success? A personal habit. Huh. You know, I've never thought about that, that, that has contributed your daily routine, something that you have over time adopted perhaps in your your regimen? I would say, you know, I've, I've touched upon EQ a number of times in, in our, our chat here. And I would say just personally interacting with people, uh, engaging strangers, if it's even just stepping into an, an elevator and saying hi and asking someone about how their day is, that draws me out. It, it, it enables me to really key in more to kind of nonverbal cues or non-visual cues or whatever might, might be going on that when I step into the office, I try to make an effort to engage with others. And, and that is something that I think I've cultivated more over the last few years uh, to when you do that, you are developing more relationships with people, and especially if you're a CFO, an executive within a company, there is some amount of, of intimidation factor that's there that executives don't normally appreciate is there, that, that more junior people might feel like they can't approach you, that if you take the time to engage them in some of the most seemingly innocuous ways, it makes it easier for them to approach you when there's a business thing that they really would like your input on. Uh, so perhaps that's what I would would put out there as one of those daily things that, that I, I do that does actually make me more effective in the business world. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Geez, I don't have that much time to read these days. But what I would say is one book that I still recall very fondly, and it was from very – Early on, uh, I was, I believe, 18 years old, having dinner with a family friend, a family friend of my, my parents, and uh, I was just mesmerized by the way that, that he was talking about life, business, and he actually happened to have this book with him, The Tao of Leadership by John Hyder. I still have it. 
still have it with the inscription from him when he gave it gave it to me. And it, it, it really just kind of covered almost a Zen way of of approaching leadership. And I would note at the time I was growing up and living in Japan, so I was among that kind of uh, culture. And uh, I read that book from front to back the next day after having uh, spent that, that dinner with them. And it, it made such an impression on me back then that um, while I didn't fully appreciate, while I appreciated it intellectually at the time, I appreciated it much more once I developed more of the, the EQ part of my skill set more recently. And I would recommend that that book, it's relevant today, just as it would have been relevant to me almost 30 years ago. Interesting. I don't want to uh, get too far off track here, but I do think it might be interesting to learn. Were you, uh, was it a parent who uh, worked overseas that brought the family uh, uh, to Japan? Or, or, and has that influenced uh, sort of your outlook in the, the business world today? Uh, I was the, the son of an expat and actually lived over in Japan twice. The first stint when I was about kindergarten age and the second stint is a high schooler and holidays in college. So do you think that influenced your outlook uh, on business? Absolutely. How so? Uh, growing up, not only in a different culture, do you take on some characteristics of that culture, but also then going to an international school in which my classmates were literally from every country around the world you would hear different perspectives that would be different from an American mindset. Um, I would say how it manifests itself today is I'm an out-of-the-box thinker. When you're, you have a particular culture, a culture effectively defines a box that, uh, that a, a whole group lives within. And you have those norms, and they're good, um, usually. But when you grow up among people who have very different viewpoints, all with some merit, it just it, it enables me to approach a situation in which I'm thinking out of the box because I know that there are different perspectives that are going to be valid that need to be considered. Well, thank you for allowing me to ask a few extra questions there. Uh, and we are up to our final question which is over the next 12 months, what are your priorities as the CFO of Fidelis Cybersecurity? I would say that the, the biggest priority is making sure that the company is on the right trajectory that we want moving forward. We were spun out of a bigger company two and a half years ago. We've had a lot of changes at the executive level over the last year. We've made an acquisition in, in the last few months uh, that provides new capabilities that we need to bring it all together to make sure that we're the right company with the right talent moving in the right direction. So there, there's a lot that we have to do to get us positioned to do that. And uh, as the CFO, I gotta make sure that we do it without breaking the bank and uh, not only really wear my CFO hat where it's the financial part, but then just the general executive and leadership hat on what does it take to motivate 
and inspire 200 plus people to start moving in, in sync in one particular direction. That's that's um, really the primary challenge that I see the company having and me being one of the key leaders in making sure that, that we do that over the next 12 months. Kurt Aptemeyer, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at CFOThoughtLeader.com.